0: overall we're winning progressives are winning and when it comes to criminal justice they don't win all the time and we have a very long way to go but the fact is that voters are looking for something different
1: welcome to new thinking from the center for court innovation i'm matt watkins the outlines of the possible are already upon us that was the conclusion of my guest today, Josie Duffy Rice, in an article entitled Abolition's Promise. It ran in the September edition of Vanity Fair. The issue was edited by ta Coates and featured a cover portrait of Brianna Taylor. What I've always liked so much about Duffy Rice's writing is her faith in the power of big ideas, but it's a faith grounded in an activist sense of the possibilities of the current moment and of the value of making a difference in people's lives in the here and now. There's a good chance you know Josie already. Her writing appears regularly in a range of well-known publications, and she's a guest host of Slate's Political Gab Fest. She's also the president of the online news site The Appeal, and the host of its podcast, Justice in America. After a long year in America for justice... I thought it was an excellent moment to reach out to Josie and get her take on the movement to change or remake this country's justice system. All that to say, there was a lot of ground to cover. I reached Josie at her home in Atlanta. Well, Josie, first off, thank you so much for doing this. This is obviously not an easy time period for anybody, but you've had some joyous news recently with the arrival of your second child. So, Um, Yeah. congratulations for that.
0: Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. I love this podcast. Um, I've used it so much in kind of developing Justice in America and thinking about this stuff. So I have to tell you, I'm really honored to be here.
1: Oh, well, that's very kind of you to say. I appreciate it. I thought we could start uh, sort of with the elephant in the room which is I guess the federal election.
0: Oh, was there a federal election lately?
1: Yeah, I heard a little bit about <laughs> that. I mean, you're in Georgia, right? So you've I am, uh, been I am. at the epicenter of uh, the madness. But if we look at the issues that, you know, you work so hard on uh, criminal justice, you know, with the caveat, of course, that the federal government doesn't actually have that much power when it comes to changing the criminal justice system, how do you think that the prospect of achieving meaningful criminal justice change has shifted uh, with the election of, of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris.
0: Like you said, I'm always kind of wary of prescribing too much power to the federal government in terms of policy, just because they don't shape as much criminal justice policy as localities and states do. But that being said, they do shape values, right? They shape tone, they shape the way that people can think about these issues. And I think the fact that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris both have kind of a complicated history in this field, and yet have evolved and changed and seen their role, you know, their perspective on this kind of change is a good sign. I also think there are some kind of meaningful things that can happen, right? Like right off the bat, we could have a total, a huge swath of pardons coming out of the office from the president. We could see a real change in the pardon office at DOJ and the process of pardoning because it's traditionally been prosecutors who kind of Pull the field for the president to decide who they're going to pardon, and I think it's really ripe for for change in that office. I also think there are other kind of like important things, right? Consent decrees coming out of DOJ, the idea that we have a Department of Justice that is willing to hold police departments and police officers accountable. Again, like there's only so much they can do. DOJ is only so big, and there's a lot of corruption uh, in police departments across the country that is not gonna get addressed by DOJ. But even the idea that they're willing to, what we've seen in the past four years is that we have a Department of Justice and, and a president who's just categorically unwilling to hold law enforcement accountable. And that in itself, I think, is going to change, I hope, under the new administration, and that's relieving. And I'll just say the last thing is that being in a Donald Trump era, living under a Donald Trump presidency, I think on both a policy level, a media level, as a writer, as a lawyer, it's very hard to play offense in general with a conservative administration. It's very, it's much harder to play offense when the conservative administration is the Donald Trump administration, which thrives in chaos and is constantly embroiled in scandal, is constantly causing some sort of mayhem that day. It just doesn't really allow people in any field, on any topic, to hunker down and make the kind of progressive change or push for the kind of progressive change that we want. And so I was talking to my in-laws about the new cabinet picks, and in some ways, I have like very strong opinions. and in other ways, I'm like, as long as we're not Donald Trump isn't in this office already we're just we have it we're going to have a much easier time
1: um I mean, we can't look into the hearts of either Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, but when you talk about how much they have evolved in their respective complicated relationships to criminal justice issues, a lot of their evolution has to go down to on the ground activism and on the ground organizing and the way the conversation about criminal justice has has shifted for the good in, in in the last years
0: like many people i think that joe biden and kamala harris when they made when they did wrong when they made mistakes they really believed they were doing right and that has historically been the case in criminal justice right this has been a you know a bipartisan effort to lock up people for years and the thought was like this not only lowers crime, it makes people better. It stick over the carrot. Like, this is how we change things. Hindsight's always 20 and there's plenty that people should have known in the moment. But now, with sort of the destruction of the past few decades, it really gives an opportunity to look back and think, like, is this actually how we want to handle crime, harm, wrongdoing in a society? I think we actually have an opportunity to kind of change that.
1: When you talk about sort of a bipartisan view on things. I mean, I've seen a spate of renewed reporting on this notion that criminal justice reform is a bipartisan issue. How do you see that position right now?
0: I'm not convinced. And in fact, maybe I'm convinced in the other direction that criminal justice is being hindered by both parties. On some level, I think, the Democrats and certainly the more left of the left understands that this is an opportunity for change and is open to change. I think the right is not even as open to change as they were four or five years ago, right? There's a lot of lip service paid to criminal justice reform. And when you actually see what happens on the ground, it's pretty unimpressive. But that being said, like across the political spectrum, right, Democrats and Republicans have have been really negative about defund the police, for example. They've blamed congressional losses, uh, de- Democrat, Congre- Democratic congressional losses on this idea of defunding the police. They've been I think condescending and punishing to organizers who have been doing this work for a long time. And they've they've really been unwilling, many of them, to imagine a new world when it comes to criminal justice. So yeah, maybe there's criminal justice reform, whatever that means, that might be possible in a bipartisan sense. That is to say, there are maybe some sentencing laws that could pass. There are perhaps like reforms on the margins. But when we're talking about creating a new world, rethinking what criminal justice is um, and what our system is and what our society looks like, I actually think we're bipartisan in the bad way. There are very few people with the bravery, the courage and the insight to be able to think about this in a revolutionary way.
1: Yeah. I mean, to be cynical at times, it can feel like there's a bipartisan consensus that we should ban the practice of shackling pregnant incarcerated women in labor. Uh, Right. But again, that's setting the bar pretty low.
0: Right. And that's the thing, right? You you know, someone says, we're not going to shackle pregnant women anymore. And everybody says, yay, we did it. You know, like, congrats to us when it really, to me, is a sign that some deep soul searching is required. The idea that we could ever think that that's not only okay, but necessary is shocking to me. And we are still kind of patting ourselves on the back for things that should be basic human rights afforded to every single person. Another example would be um, voting rights, you know, the disenfranchisement of people who have been convicted of crimes. To me, it's a no-brainer. Everybody should be allowed to vote, right? We do not have a strong democracy if every eligible person, you know, meaning that over the age of 18, is, does not have the right to vote. And we're still kind of arguing the details of that, Overall, it is indicative of, of a rot in our society that this is even a question.
1: In November, people weren't just voting for uh, a president; there were also a lot of criminal justice uh, issues on the ballot in, in states across the country. That's something that uh, the appeal where your president covers so well through the great work of uh, Daniel Nacanian. Are there some results there that you would like to particularly highlight? I mean, I, I was struck as a lot of people were by the the Oregon vote to. Um, decriminalize possession of small amounts of all drugs, I think, which is really quite something.
0: I mean, the Oregon news, I think, is really exciting. And there's there's been some other good news, right? We, I think in three fairly big counties, three big races, at least, we saw more progressive DAs get elected. The biggest one, obviously, is in Los Angeles, the biggest county in America, where Jackie Lacey had been in office for the past eight or 12 years. I'm not sure which one, but tough on crime prosecutor, pretty harsh, a long history of the death penalty, and really was pretty hostile towards organizing and change. George Gascon, the former district attorney of San Francisco, beat her in a race, which was very close. And we saw other victories in Los Angeles, which has such a strong sort of organizing base. People like Patrice Cullors and others have just been fighting there for decades, really, to to make changes to some very regressive California laws and, and local laws. So I think California, particularly Los Angeles, ha- saw some really big victories on election day. In Orlando, Monique Worrell, who worked for the former DA, Aramis Ayala, Aramis Sayala was the first black female district attorney in Florida. And since she got elected in 2012, Sixteen has faced just an enormous amount of pushback, primarily because she said she would never seek the death penalty. And seeing what happened to her in, in Florida, seeing how the governor turned her into this political villain, how the state took power from her because she said she didn't think that people deserved to be put to death, was really quite disturbing, I think, and really a moment for me of realizing how deep our carceral politics go. Um, and so to see a progressive... Another progressive black woman win in that seat, I think, was really great. And then in Austin, we saw Jose Garza win, who has already begun to change the office significantly. He, again, beat a fairly... I mean, Margaret Moore was a a relatively moderate DA, right? She wasn't like the worst we've ever seen, but she wasn't willing to do what the moment called for. And so she was beat by Jose Garza, who has already kind of put together a coalition of defense attorneys. He actually hired one of my colleagues to be his first assistant. And there has been, you know, other kind of significant uh, legislative victories. In South Dakota and, and Montana, they legalized marijuana I would say like overall, we're winning, right? Progressives are winning when it comes to criminal justice. They don't win all the time. They don't win on everything. And we have a very long way to go. But the fact is that voters are looking for something different. They really are. And when you look at local elections, it's one of the places where the ability for progressive movement to actually take hold when it comes to criminal justice is is really clear when you look at local elections
1: you know, it's interesting because you're someone who's been skeptical of what people call the progressive prosecutor movement and this whole notion that you can reform the criminal justice system via the prosecutor, you know, whose main job is usually locking people up. So I I wonder, it's a a few years in now, this movement, Kim Fox, another pioneering African American woman, state's attorney in Cook County for Chicago, she's been reelected. But what's your sense of how this movement is progressing, if you agree it is a movement, and, and and what its promise can be.
0: When I started covering criminal justice, this was about five or six years ago, the idea of a progressive prosecutor wasn't even really a thing. When A couple months after I started covering prosecutors, the more cr- progressive candidate in Caddo Parish, Louisiana, where Shreveport is, won the election. And I don't think today we would even consider him progressive, right? He's He's pretty middle of the road. But at the time, it was just so major. It seemed like opening a completely new avenue of change. And I think in a lot of ways that's proven true, right? You know, you think about Kim Fox in Chicago, Larry Krasner in um, Philadelphia. You think about, you know, Rachel Rollins in Boston or again, Aramis Ayala in Orlando and George Gascone in Los Angeles now. I mean, the impact that they've had, they certainly have not been perfect. Every single one of them has in some ways been disappointing at some point. But, you know, when you think about the idea of harm reduction and the fact that in some ways their role is to reduce harm, they have absolutely reduced harm than the people that were in the office before. They've absolutely been more accountable to black and incarcerated communities than their predecessors. And, you know, if you're looking at net benefit, I think there is a net benefit to having what we call progressive prosecutors in office. But I I think it still presents some problems. Right. The first is that it's very difficult to hold progressive prosecutors or any prosecutor accountable in the same way. And that's because this is a very opaque system. It's a very confusing system. There's not a lot of data. These people are seeing hundreds of thousands of cases a year. What that means is that for organizers and for people on the ground and for policymakers and for people who are invested in change in this system, it's not just good enough to elect a progressive prosecutor. You actually have to make sure they do what they're going to say. And that's hard. You know, if you think electing, you know, if you think the campaign part is hard, the accountability part is just as hard, if not in some ways harder. And so that always gives me pause when we kind of think that election day is the end of the road. It's not. The second thing I think is that, look, prosecutors, no matter if you're the most progressive prosecutor on the planet, your job is put people in prison. Right. (laughs) That's your job. And to me, that's a bad job. It's not a job I could do it's not a job I can trust. And so, you know, you're putting someone better into a system that still demands a level of cruelty, of barbarism that is unavoidable. And the idea that prosecutors are going to be the thing that creates the most change, that saves us, is, I think, completely false. But like any sort of reform... We're talking about a couple of different things, right? One again is harm reduction. One is like how can we make how can we make the lives of people in this system better tomorrow than they are today? And I think by having a quote-unquote progressive prosecutor, odds are a little bit more on people's side of that being possible. But if you're talking about really changing this system, it's not going to be the progressive prosecutor that does it.
1: If we turn to look at what happened in this country after the murder of of George Floyd in May by a a white Minneapolis police officer, I've been struggling a bit to think about what's what you know what's the noun to describe what took place and is taking place in this country. On on one level, it's a sort of overdue reckoning, you know, with this country's racist history and and present. But of course, it's it, it's really just a reckoning for white people. It's not that the country is racist is not news for people in this country who who, who aren't white, I don't think. So right. how do you see what took place and is taking place? How do you see that feeding into the prospect of, of longer term change in the criminal justice system?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, look, my perspective is probably a little warped for two reasons. One, like you said, I'm black in America. <laughs> I have a A black family. Um, I have a black husband. I have two black kids. And so in some ways, like what happened with the George Floyd thing didn't feel new to me or like new information. And also because I work in this field, right, I kept like having to call my friends and be like, does this seem like a big deal to you? Mm. Because it it seemed like it was really activating a lot of people. But I also recognize that my window of of who is invested in this is, is already skewed towards people who are invested in this. So I think I'm always kind of amazed at how some of these things catch on. And and look, like people are talking about stuff like defund the police, right? A lot of people are saying it's a bad slogan. A lot of people are anti-defund the police or using it in ways that villainize it. But the fact that it's even a conversation just tells you how what's possible. It really tells you that there's something brewing that people care and that people's perspective on this is being at least challenged and and change. but that being said like again, how this all plays out on the ground it's always extremely difficult to tell and in a lot of places we're seeing police budgets increase. We're seeing this being used for for negative ends. we're seeing we're seeing people run on this idea that progressives want lawless dangerous cities but i think what you're seeing in the george floyd moment was really important you saw people take to the streets you saw not just black people take to the streets right and you saw how police in particular use violence as a method of control and what really shocked me in those moments were how willing they were to do that against white people you were seeing white people get tear gassed white people almost run over by police It was kind of a moment where I think a lot of people were like, yes, this is what we've been talking about. Not that we want anybody to be harmed, of course, but it it was an example of this is what black people have been saying for literally generations. So it feels like an important moment. But as always, I'm nervous about what it actually means in terms of change because – it's easy to say you support these ideas. And I would say it's even pretty easy to go out and march a couple of times. But again, this is a long fight and we need all hands on deck. And sometimes people get distracted after the summer's over, right?
1: You mentioned defund the police, where there's a lot of controversy about it and a lot of, to be uncharitable, hand rigging about it. It seems to me that some of the, there's a misunderstanding there that people are seeing it primarily as a slogan when it's not really a, a slogan. It's a it's a very sharply pointed and formulated policy demand. I mean, I think that's right. part of the reason it's having the success that it's having.
0: When I think about defund the police, I mean, I, I'm seeing all sorts of takes on it. You know, very few police actually kill people. What are you going to do about public safety? This is an, another example of austerity. What we actually need is more money in police to make them better, etc you You know, you hear all the takes. What I don't think that people understand is that when we're talking about, and this is something Ruth Wilson Gilmore has said, and, and Miriam Kaba and people that have really kind of shaped my view on the idea of abolition, we're talking about creation, not destruction, right? And so we're saying, what would you need to create a universe where police are not necessary? And let's create that universe. And that's a better universe for police. That's a major part that I think keeps getting lost in this conversation. Police are not equipped nor should they be tasked with taking care of people in a mental health crisis, with handling addiction, which is a physical and mental disease. This is not their job. And so to be able to clear the field of some of the responsibilities that they don't need to have and shift those responsibilities and that and that focus to other departments, to other people, to other um, social services, I think is good for everybody.
1: I mean, there is a world in which defund the police does have to function as a slogan. And in that sense, there isn't really a positive. this is the sort of critique I've I've heard from some sympathetic people about it, which is that it doesn't outline any kind of positive or affirmative vision. It's strictly defund the police. Do you see that as some of the problem to the extent there is one that there isn't a, a positive vision being declared?
0: I don't. And the reason is because defunding the police is a crucial, the most crucial part of what Organizer set out to describe. It highlights that there is a force, especially in black and brown and poor communities, which is harming people and that this is not the job of the government to harm people, to make people feel less safe. It highlights the depths of the restrictive role that police play in our, in our communities. And I think it's important to make it clear that, yes, we want better schools. We want more jobs. We want parks that our kids can go to after school, right? We want people to make a livable wage and we want the world to look for people, especially for, again, poor black and Brown people like a world that accepts them, that wants them to succeed and that wants them to be safe. And a super crucial part of that is defunding the police. Now, of course it makes people uncomfortable, I get that it's not supposed to make people comfortable and I think my response to that tends to be this is what people are trying to tell you. what makes them uncomfortable is the constant presence of law enforcement in their in their world. Um, what makes them uncomfortable is the depths of brutality of over policing of punishment that their communities have been subject to for for decades And what we tend to care about is what makes, white people uncomfortable rich people uncomfortable suburban people uncomfortable powerful people uncomfortable but we don't tend to sit with what makes the people who are actually paying the price uncomfortable you know i live in a in a neighborhood that is almost all black a poor neighborhood the schools are not good the violence level is pretty high and i love my neighborhood i love my neighbors right but it's it can be a unnerving place to be sometimes late at night when you're when you know that a couple houses down or a couple blocks away there's consistent violence. So in my neighborhood, for example, I don't hear a lot about defund the police when I look at like next door or our community boards or whatever. What I actually hear is I wish the police were here more. But what I think that that misses is that if my community had what it needed, we would not need the police here more. (laughs) Right. If my community had The social services that my parents zip code has, if my community had the investment that other neighborhoods have, we would not have the same concerns that we that we have right now. So, you know, it's an extreme slogan. And I think that there are a lot of people who think it doesn't work and I a lot of people I respect think it doesn't work when we first start talking about this, my dad called me and he's like, I don't really like the defund the police slogan because it sounds like you guys want to defund the police. I was <laughs> like, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's exactly what we mean. <laughs> Thank you. But that is something that people have to sit with. And in my head, if we get to a place where we've defunded the police 50%, that's a pretty significant victory, right? It's not every it's not the whole gambit, but it's something. If we get to a place where people in budget meetings are starting to rethink how we um have been increasing, you know, law enforcement budgets at the expense of other social services for decades, that's a win. So I don't expect everybody to to like it. Not everybody liked, you know, if you were polling the civil rights movement this time 40, 50 years ago, you wouldn't like what you saw either. <laughs> but I tend to believe that making people think about big ideas is important.
1: It's your position that in this great Vanity Fair article you wrote that I'll link to um, on the episode page that, you know, the police as an institution are just so polluted historically that it's not an institution that can be reformed. It can only be abolished. But would you say that now you would extend that judgment to the criminal justice or the criminal legal system as a whole?
0: I think I would. Yeah. I mean, and there are parts of the system that I think are really important. I mean, in theory at least, our constitution really does afford defendants rights in a way that when you're learning about the constitution, like high school civics or whatever, I just don't think you always recognize how crucial that is. The right to be tried by a jury of your peers, the right to, you know, for a trial to be overseen by a judge, the fact that there are constitutional limitations to what defendants can be charged with or face or how they can be punished are important. So if I were designing again, there are parts that I would retain, but there's plenty that I would get rid of. And I think part of the problem of our criminal justice system is that we just rely on it too much. If this system was dealing with constantly dealing with real harm, murders and domestic violence, for example, um, if it was constantly dealing with rape, then I think I would feel differently about its efficacy and the value of the system as it's created. But it's actually not normally dealing with real harm. And it really is just kind of processing people in a way that not only fails to address harm, but actually increases it. So the system as designed and the system in practice are very different. And I don't think the system as designed is perfect by any means. But I think it has in some ways, it has good bones, <laughs> um, and it's the way that that it plays out on the ground that causes so much harm. And when we think about reform, like we're often again just kind of tinkering at the margins. We're saying, well people with drug problems shouldn't have to go to regular court. They can go to drug court. Well, maybe that's helpful in some situations and and maybe it's better than nothing, except that like we're still putting people with addiction problems in a punishment system. Its priorities are out of whack. The entire system's priorities are out of whack. And I don't know how you fix that without kind of starting from close to scratch.
1: Right. But I mean, there are reforms that are a form of harm reduction, as you're saying, and, and some are going to be doing that more than others. So, I mean, what do you see as the relationship then between reform of the criminal justice system and abolition of it? Do you see reform and abolition as being opponents, or are there ways in which they can be complementary?
0: I don't see them as being opponents, and I do think there are ways in which they can be complementary. I'm assuming we're not going to abolish everything tomorrow, and I don't think we could. Our society is really shaped around the criminal justice system. We allow it to shape our priorities we allow it to do what other systems aren't doing and so i don't think tomorrow you can take every police officer in every prison um, and shut them down right because like we don't have the structures necessary to absorb what we've created but i think that question whether reform and abolition are constantly at odds with each other or whether they can be complementary is a really good one and it sort of depends on the reform I think we're always kind of imagining the counterfactual. When you look at what a reform does, I think it's worth looking at what it doesn't do and what it's prohibiting. And I think I'll use drug court as an example again. And I'm thinking of the drug courts here in Georgia and other places, not the more innovative courts that the Center for Court Innovation has because- As a former intern at CCI, (laughs) I think the work that is done there is really, really crucial. But if a county implements a drug court and it actually is not having a much better impact on people with addictions lives, but now they get to say they implemented this drug court and now they get to say that they've done criminal justice reform and they get to sort of sit on their laurels in that way without actually grappling with harm, then I don't know that that's a good reform. But then again, there are other reforms. There are places that are trying to cut jail populations by, you know, a significant percentage. Is that abolition? No, it's not abolition. But That's good. That's a good thing. We're recognizing the necessity of reducing the population. And and in some places, they're doing it. And so sort of engaging with the big ideas and with the policy stuff takes a lot of nuance and balancing and, and trying to figure out what's best for this moment.
1: You know, I I, I want to ask you about your work at the uh, appeal, but I, I thought before we get there, I'd really be interested to hear your take on how you think the media is doing of late covering criminal justice issues and, you know, specifically maybe taking the um, point in time of of the murder of George Floyd and, and everything that followed from it.
0: When I started working at the Public Defender's Office as an assistant, this was 11 years ago, the idea that. The media would engage with the idea of reform without simultaneously constantly fear mongering was kind of a pipe dream. And so the fact that you see that at all, I think, is a good sign. That being said, like there's a long way to go, and the media faces a lot of kind of internal and external constraints that make it difficult sometimes to tell these stories. If you're a local reporter in a county in Missouri or something and you cover you know, you're not a criminal justice reporter. You're a crime reporter. That's a different job. It requires different allegiances in a lot of ways. It requires. Um, it's it's very difficult to criticize a local prosecutor if tomorrow you're going to need them for comment. We still see a lot of problems, right? We still see language like felon and criminal being used kind of constantly. We still see the media highlighting an outlier situation and fear mongering with that outlier situation, and I think. When you look at, for example, the coverage of the bail reform laws in, in New York and how immediately after bail reform was implemented, all of a sudden you saw headlines like man let out on bail, Rob's store, man let out on bail, hijack's car or whatever it was without kind of engaging with what that means, <laughs> you know. What it means to keep someone who hasn't been convicted of a crime in, in prison? How many people were let out on bail and didn't do any of that stuff? Is crime actually increasing? What does an increasing crime look like? What are the other social factors going on at this moment? For example, how low is unemployment and is are we in a pandemic or whatever? You really just saw a lot of willy-nilly connection between policy reform and crime on the on the ground which i think was irresponsible and largely falls on the medias on the media's shoulders. So that's a very long way of saying that it's gotten better in a lot of ways but we still have a very very long way to go when it comes to having a discerning and accurate media infrastructure around this issue.
1: As i mentioned you're the president of, of the appeal um which is you know this great uh, online publication devoted to criminal justice issues and and yeah, I'm wondering what, what you see as the the role of the appeal in the conversation that you're just talking about. And, you know, I'd be curious to get your thoughts on what sort of space the appeal is occupying that, say, the Marshall Project isn't, for example.
0: Journalism in a lot of places is falling apart. It doesn't have the funding it needs. It's been bought up by big corporations and chopped into a million pieces and left for dead. It's being run by big conglomerates like Sinclair reporters don't have the resources necessary especially and by reporters i mean local reporters resources necessary to tell to do investigative journalism to tell big stories to keep their jobs and so in a lot of ways what we were trying to do was help support local journalism right partner with them sometimes on stories make sure that we were getting across the importance of of local journalism and of local storytelling when it comes to national national issues and so those are really remain our goals. We're dedicated to covering issues that affect vulnerable people, right? And that is not just criminal justice, but housing, the economy, the environment, education. And we're very, very dedicated to holding elected officials accountable. The way I always put it is we name the direct object. It's common in, especially in stories about criminal justice, right? Man wrongfully convicted and imprisoned for 40 years or whatever. Man dies in jail cell after being beaten. What's missing from that is who wrongfully convicted that man, who imprisoned him, who beat him. And so often, we're not actually willing to ascribe a person, an office, or a system of wrongdoing when we tell these stories. I think that's changing. And I hope, in part, that's changing because of the appeal. Because if you don't have journalism that will hold people accountable, elected officials, public officials accountable for wrongdoing, then what's the purpose of journalism, right? The differences between us and the Marshall Project, I think the Marshall Project started with slightly different goals. They still pretty exclusively cover the criminal justice system. And a lot of the work that they do is just absolutely incredible. They have great reporters. They're they're really important. I, I don't actually know that this is a difference, but I'll say that. One of our operating perspectives at the appeal is that there is no real question of whether mass incarceration exists. Like we acknowledge that at baseline. That, and this isn't really directed at the Marshall Project, but it's more of a sort of a broader thing that I think sets us apart is that we're starting a little bit down the line. We don't do a lot of work on like, is this injustice? We start with the injustice part and then we we tell stories. People call it different stuff like advocacy journalism and left journalism or whatever. I, I don't tend to like those terms because I think they're kind of empty and meaningless in a lot of ways. But we're t- certainly you wouldn't read the appeal and not know where we come down on things. And I don't think that's true of the Marshall Project either, although we might be a little bit a, li- a little bit more extreme and on, on in that sense. But, you know, like all of us are trying to tell stories, tell substantiated stories the journalism that I think all the publications in this field do is extremely strong. And we're trying to run nonprofit newsrooms. And so in a lot of ways, there's there's more similar between us than, than different.
1: No, definitely. Um, although, you know, it seems to me, though, that you guys started with the notion that the criminal justice system did not have to exist. I mean, you know, the idea of abolition has always been on the table for The appeal and and given what we've been talking about with um, the ascent of the defund the police demand of late. I mean, in some ways that makes you guys seem ahead of the curve.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that this is true. At the appeal, we're certainly ready to present the big ideas, the really big reforms to really talk about like how this could look different and create and at least make accessible a vision of a future that's not every outlet's priority that goes for any outlet, right? Like the New York Times, the Washington Post, whatever. Like people have different kind of perspectives on what journalism provides. And I think we need all of it.
1: And, and then, of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your great criminal justice podcast, Justice in America. Uh, I think you guys are heading now into your fourth season. And I, I'm wondering what you see yourself doing through audio in this space that, that maybe you you can't do through print.
0: Yeah, I mean Justice in America has just been such an exciting and rewarding project and I think it is precisely because of that that for people who like podcasts and for people who are sort of audio oriented, it provides a different way to get this uh, this information across. It's not the same as the written work on the appeal, right? You know, we're not doing a podcast per story. We're not doing a podcast per location. We do it basically by topic. You know, we've talked about prosecutors and immigration. We've talked about public defense, the criminalization of poverty, judicial elections. We've talked about clemency. We've talked about restorative justice. And and it's different, I think, than telling individual stories, right? We're kind of fitting the stories into the general topic instead of the other way around. But the hope, I think, is that it's accessible in the way that I want the appeal to also be accessible. Again, the criminal justice system is really opaque. And it's really only the details of it are really only accessible to people who focus their whole lives on it or our lawyers or whatever it is. And th- it's a system that affects all of us, right? So we should all be able to navigate it with some level of knowledge, and that's sort of what we're trying to help provide.
1: And then just to conclude, um, you know, I you present your kind of public persona in this space to me anyway. You you seem kind of like a like a happy warrior uh, when it comes to fighting for the issues that you believe in. So I thought we should try to end on a, a, a hopeful note and there's been some there's been some notes of that already in, in this interview. but I mean, other than the two kids that, that we mentioned off the top, um, I mean <laughs> w- what gets you out of bed uh, in, in the morning? I mean, what makes you optimistic right now about the future and the possibility of, of real uh, political change?
0: We're in a generational struggle. We're not in a struggle for this year. We're not in a struggle for this decade. We're not even a struggle for this century, right? We're in a generational struggle in which we are kind of only a part of that and we're part of something much bigger. That can either drive people or be overwhelming. For me, I think it really helps drive me because it gives a sense of purpose and a sense of purpose to future generations. And it means that I'm working towards something that I might not ever see real, really the fruits of. But that's okay if I'm if I'm fighting a big fight. So, yes, my kids help get me out of bed mainly because they wake up at like 6 a.m. and I have to get out of bed. Um, I, you know, I am lucky to have great friends and family, and all of that really helps kind of not get too depressed about this field. But overall, I think understanding that this actually isn't about any of us. It's about something much bigger. It's about a much bigger fight. And it's our duty to fight it. I find that encouraging.
1: Well, I have to say I've gotten you know, that sense of the, the much bigger fight that's at the core of this is I think that always comes through in, in your writing. And I, I oh, think, yeah, you. I've really benefited from it and, and learned a lot from your work. And so I just want to thank you very much for that work, uh, both of the, the audio and the written variety. And uh, of course, thank you for finally being uh, a guest on, on New Thinking. Like, I'm just so glad we could make this happen. So thank you, Joseph.
0: I am too. I'm so thrilled to be on. So thank you so much for having me.
1: That was my conversation with Josie Duffy Rice. Josie is a criminal justice commentator and activist. She's also the president of The Appeal and the host of its podcast, Justice in America. For more information about this episode, click the link in your show notes or go to courtinnovation.org newthinking. For their help with this episode, my thanks to Rachel Barco and Somil Trevetti. The episode was produced and edited by me, you can find me on Twitter at didacticmat, And you can follow the Center for Court Innovation at Court Innovation. Samiha Mia is our Director of Design. Emma Dayton is our VP of Outreach. Our music is by Michael Aaron at QuiverNYC.com. And our show's founder is Rob Wolf. If you like what you've been hearing, uh, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening.